Welcome to the Sobriety Diaries, friend. My name is Nate. I am a grateful recovering alcoholic and sober coach. My addiction has shaped the person I am today and given me the ability and voice to help others, and I simply wouldn't be here without it. Recovery is possible. The Sobriety Diaries is a video podcast where we share powerful stories of recovery told by those who live them. Head on over to thesobrietydiaries.com where you can apply to be a guest on the show and join our insiders list for exclusive content, early release episodes, and much more. Also, please share this podcast with just one person in your life who may still be struggling. You just never know what they may need to hear today. Before we jump into things today, I wanted to take a moment to thank Exact Nature for partnering with me on today's episode. Exact Nature loves partnering with the Sobriety Diaries because we are committed to the same goal, helping you quit drinking or drugging. Exact Nature's safe, all-natural CBD products help you face the exponential challenges of sobriety. I absolutely love the single-serve stirring packs. You can take them on the go, stir them into any beverage, and it just helps sustain my calm and my focus throughout the day. Check out exactnature.com for more information on all of their products, and as a listener of the Sobriety Diaries, use the code TSD20 to receive a 20% discount on your order. Again, exactnature.com. Happy Sober Day, friends. Thank you so much for downloading today's episode and spending time with me here on the Sobriety Diaries. I want to get right into today's show because I am so excited about it. My new friend, Tiffany Jenkins, from the Hilarity over at Juggling the Jenkins, is joining us today. She is also the author of the memoir, High Achiever, with a second book in the works now, as I understand it. She is coming up on nine years clean from an opioid addiction, and she is recovering out loud, and I absolutely adore her recovery and the openness in which she shares. So let's open the diary on Tiffany Jenkins. Tiffany Jenkins, what an honor. Thank you so much for making time for my little old show today. Uh, I'm so excited to have you here. Thank you so much. It's so kind of you to say that. I admire you just as much. I think it takes a brave person to be able to take their story and what could be the darkest time of their life and turn it into something so positive and powerful. And I I think it's amazing. I'm happy to be here. I definitely want to talk about High Achiever. It changed my perspective on my recovery and things that could have been shameful in my past and helped me look at them in a different way. So I certainly want to talk about that. But why don't we start with your journey and how we made it, I think, nine years? Are we coming up on nine years? Coming up on nine years, almost. How exciting. So let's start with your story. Sure. So I never really knew growing up what an addict was. I had an idea of what an addict looked like, um, but it it was always, you know, a scruffy, grown man living under a bridge. It was never um, me. I grew up in a home with a police officer as a stepfather, and there was lots of structure in the house. 
I knew right from wrong. I knew what I was supposed to be doing. And I was a cheerleader in high school. And so I, I got good grades and I did the right thing and I made the right choices. And I made it all the way through high school. It wasn't my, it wasn't until my senior year that I had my first sip of alcohol, which was the first thing that I had done at all. That was bad mm. up until that point. And when I had that first sip of alcohol, it, um, it awakened something inside of me. It made me numb. It made me feel nothing for the first time. And prior to that, I had been struggling with all these things, but I didn't realize it. There wasn't a name for it. I was a super anxious kid. I experienced um, being overweight and being bullied, but I thought that that was just a part of growing up. I started thinking really negatively about myself because of the people who made fun of me. And so I was constantly obsessing and wondering what people were thinking of me and wondering how I was coming across. And it wasn't until I had that sip of alcohol and felt absolutely nothing that I realized that it was possible to stop all these things that had been plaguing me up until that point. And what ended up happening was that feeling was so good that I, I did whatever it took to continue feeling it. And that included skipping school. And within three months of drinking alcohol, I ended up completely dropping out of high school. It was my senior year. I was almost done. And um, I just, I wanted to be where the people who were drinking and smoking were. My parents were so confused. Everybody was confused. And I began to feel guilt and shame. And so in order to make that stop, I just kept doing what I was doing. And things escalated as they do. The drinking turned into smoking marijuana. And then eventually it turned into my drug of choice, which I don't know how graphic we want to go on the show, but I'll keep it. Um, yeah, I just don't want to trigger anyone. Yeah. And I know that there's people in all different stages yes. of recovery. And so I like to keep it general, but my drug of choice was opiates. And so I had no idea that you could get addicted to them. I thought things that you got addicted to were the harder drugs, the ones that you used intravenously right. or the ones that you smoked. I didn't think that opiates could do that to you. Um, and so I started doing opiates a little bit at a time. Just, it was fun at first, me and my friend were doing them until there was a night where I felt really sick and it felt like my bones were growing out of my body. I felt like I was getting bit by little ants and I was like, what is going on? And my best friend was like, it's probably cause you haven't had a pill today. Go do one. You'll be fine. And so I went and I got one and all of that pain went away instantly. And that was the night that I stopped uh, using drugs for fun. And started using them because I had to in order to not feel that anymore. Mm. And it wasn't long after I got that like, addicted feeling that my mom got really sick. She was diagnosed with cancer at 46 and she passed away five months later. Wow. Yeah, super sudden, super quick. And I found out I was getting a trust fund. And I was like, I know that I'm going to end up dying if I get this trust fund. And so... I went to the person who was in charge and said, I think I have a problem. And if you give me this money, I'm just going to buy drugs with it. So I went to rehab. I went to rehab because I thought I was supposed to, not yeah. because I wanted to. Right. I thought it was the right thing to do. And so I was defiant the entire time. I thought that the problem was the opiates. I said I, I was going to keep drinking. I was going to keep smoking. I just wasn't going to do the pills. And I could see that the counselors in the rehab were upset with me. And 
they're like, you don't get it. And I'm like, no, you don't get it. And I was just so hurt from like the passing of my mom. Yeah. I thought I knew everything. Yeah. And so um, three months after I got out of rehab, I had managed to not do pills yet. I was just drinking and partying like I knew I would. And I met a police officer at a bar one night and he was interested in me. And in my head, I was like, oh yeah, this is perfect. This is what I need yeah. to not uh, do drugs. Because obviously you can't do drugs if you're dating a cop. That would be impossible. Or can um, you? <laughs> well, fun fact. Um, <laughs> addiction doesn't really care who you're dating. Uh, it doesn't care what your dreams are, or what your goals are. And so I was introduced again to my drug of choice at one point, and I took it. And I was fully prepared uh, for him to break up with me. The minute he saw me, he would know I was high because right. it was like his one job in life to right. find high people <laughs> and arrest them. Right. But he didn't know for two and a half years I hid my addiction from him. Was that like a, a additional layer of the addiction, that adrenaline of not getting caught? That's an interesting question. I think that I was so terrified terrified to get caught because he had he was perfect and he bought us a home and a puppy and like by all outward appearances my life was perfect and I knew that if he found out the truth about the monster that I was all of that would go away and so there came like this new level of desperation for him not to find out yeah and so every word out of my mouth was a lie and I say it all the time but like I, I would start a lie on Monday because I knew I was going to need it by Thursday. Mm. And so I would just start planting the seed and be like, oh, remember that thing I told you about yes. where I wasn't going to have money? It's happening now. And he was just so kind. And so I think he loved me so much. He was blind to the truth. He didn't want to see it. And so with this newfound desperation came like a drop in morals. And I found myself using drugs in a way that I never thought I would. And um, I began using them intravenously. And I got addicted to that, the process of it. Yeah. It was like a ritual, a very personal ritual. And um, I knew that something was going to happen. And I, I had hoped selfishly that it would be death because I, I just, I felt like I was never destined to be an adult. Like I was born by mistake and I was meant to live like a fast, short little life and fizzle out. And to be honest, the idea of living a life without drugs seemed impossible. And so I would, every day I would hope for death. I would wake up. It would be my first thought, like, how can I die today? And then my second thought was, okay, how do I get money to get drugs? And it just, it was a roller coaster I couldn't get off of. In my addiction and in my desperation to hide it from him, I started pawning things from around the house and it started with my things and then I ran out of my things and I started pawning his things, but I had every intention of getting them back from the pawn shop as we do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it just never happened. And so, um, one day when I had nothing left to pawn, my drug dealer asked if I had a way to obtain him a gun. And I said, for sure I do again, thinking that I'd be able to get them back. And so I, guns in the hands of a drug dealer, which in the hindsight, it's the one thing out of all the things that makes me cringe because it's so dangerous. But in that moment, I did not care. 
I didn't care. It wasn't about putting drugs in the hands of drug dealers. It was about having enough pills to make it through a day to right. keep my life going. It felt like my life depended on it. And, um, and then I got caught. I don't know how I thought I wouldn't. I think part of me thought if he ever found out, he would be like, Tiffany, that's so bad. Yeah. Let's go to rehab. Right. I wasn't counting on um, his sergeant finding out first. And that's what happened because they investigated. He noticed the guns were missing right away. And he, he reported a burglary in the home. Mm. They came to investigate. And I was acting real suspicious, even though I thought I was putting on like an Academy Award winning. Right, <laughs> right. <laughs> I guess I was suspicious. So they ran my name in the pond thing. And it was like, bleep, 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 bleep. All the things I'd ever pond came up. And the, his sergeant went to him and was like, do you know that your girlfriend's doing this? And he had no idea. And so he's like, I'm sorry, we have no choice. We got to go arrest her. And um, I was woken up out of bed and arrested. And it was um, it was the end as far as I was concerned. It was out of the bag. Everybody knew who I was. Everybody knew the things that I had been hiding in the dark for years. Um, I was taken to jail. I was charged with like 17 to 20 felonies initially. And yeah. I tried to die in jail on day three. I tried to take my own life because again, the withdrawals combined with the mental anguish combined with looking towards the future and just thinking like there's nothing there. I can't do it. I don't have the willpower or the strength to do it. I was like, I got to go. And so I tried with all my might to end my life and I was found and they saved me and I was super pissed about it. And they took me to suicide watch and stripped me of my clothes and my glasses and everything. And um, I detoxed on the floor. The more Can time I ask I- you real quick about yeah. the, the um, counselor that brought your glasses to you that you knew from high school? Yeah. Do you, is there any um, contact? Do you guys? Yeah. 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 We still talk all the time. I'm happy to hear that. Yeah. Um, she's incredible. She was the first person who in my, addiction like once the mask had come off and my real broken self was revealed she was the first person who treated me like a human yeah and there were all these little things that occurred along this journey that ultimately I believe led to who I am today and that was the first thing that happened that made me who I am it was the first person to treat me like a human and remind me of my old self again and um, I think her grace and kindness really um, help me make it through a simple gesture mm-hmm. that they are, you know, helping to fulfill or helping to, uh, really something simple in their mind, how it can affect or impact someone who is broken and is just sort of yearning for that small little sign or small anything really. And, and you, you said that it's, it's one of the things that has made you who you are. Yeah. And it's so hard for people to do that, especially when it comes to addiction, because when we're in active addiction, we're not making good choices. We're not being good people. And so to extend grace to somebody who maybe doesn't deserve it at the time, it Mm -hmm. takes a big person to do that. The longer I stayed in jail and the longer the drugs left my system, the more I found myself feeling human again. Like the first time I laughed, genuinely belly laughed in jail. 
it was so confusing. It made my cheeks hurt. And then I cried because I forgot what it was like to feel joy. <laughs> yeah. I had been like numb for so long. And I was like, oh my gosh, I remember now. And uh, that was a turning point for me. And then my father visiting me on Christmas was a huge turning point. My dad came in and he had been an alcoholic my whole life. And so when he came in and told me he had cancer, I was sad. And then he told me that he had like 62 days sober. It was so amazing. I couldn't believe it. I couldn't fathom him not being under the influence. And, and I said to him, what, you know, what does this mean? He's like, it means you need to get your crap together and get out of here and let's do this recovery journey together as a family. And he said, you know, I will always love you no matter what I'm your dad. There's nothing you could ever do to make me think of you any different. And I, I didn't think I was capable of being loved. I didn't think I was worthy of love. And the idea that this person had faith in me, even though I didn't have faith in myself, is really what made me write to the rehabs and beg for the judge to let me go to rehab. Wow. That that conversation has like every emotion under the sun with your dad. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I can't imagine. Yeah, it was really it was a, a mixture of emotions, um, for sure. And I tried not to focus on the cancer part of it other than I was like, okay, I gotta, I gotta get out of here. I gotta spend time with him. And before it's too late, I had already blew it with my mom. I had already, I was in a haze of drugs with my mom. And I was like, this is my chance to get it right. And so the judge gave me two options and said, you can stay in jail for a while, or you can get out of jail and go to a six month treatment program. And I chose the treatment program because I knew that the my brain was going to go with me wherever I went and I needed help. I needed to figure out why I was doing the things that I was doing. And so I spent six months in rehab and it was something that I wanted instead of something that I just thought I was supposed to do. I actually, right. I wanted it. And when you want something, you're willing to do whatever it takes and right. you're willing to fight and put up with all the crap that goes along with it because you just, you want it. And that's what it was. I was a sponge. I just absorbed everything. Um, I listened, I took notes, I asked questions. I was so determined to find out why, like why I was the way I was, why I couldn't function like a normal person and what I needed to do to live life differently. And after six months, I made the decision to go to a halfway house so that I could still be accountable, but learn how to live life um, without drugs. Is there any sort of treatment or, um, meetings or or anything inside the correction facility they have na come in once or uh once or twice a month in the jail that i was in yeah um and the only reason that i signed up for the classes was to get out of the pod because i was so sick of looking through the same walls i never really got anything out of the meetings um personally however there's the jail in my town that I go and I speak to, um, they have programs. It's, uh, it's called the recovery pod. And from sunup to sundown, you're in classes and there's speakers and you're doing assignments and you're learning a life of recovery. You have to qualify to get into the pod and then you qualify to get out of it and graduate. And the success rate is unbelievable. And I think that makes all the difference in the world. Cause you can keep me caged away from the drugs all you want. Right. But until I learned how to not live without drugs. I'm going to be right back where right. I am now. We, as 
addicts use drugs and alcohol as our only coping mechanism and the only way to deal with life and to, you know, when we're happy, when we're sad, when life's hard, when it's good, like that is what we do. And to your point, until we learn otherwise or help to develop other tools to use, you know, we're, we're going back to, to what we know. Like I, I like to, to tell the story, like I had a stroke at the age of 32 as a direct result of my alcoholism. And I laid in the hospital for six weeks and thought about what my first drink would be. And I left the hospital and drank because that's all I know how to, that's all I knew how to do. And to have been through this major health trauma, traumatic event, you know, I was, I was certainly going to go home and drink. That's all I knew how to do. That's how I coped with things. So Mm -hmm. it's a great point that you made. And that is a great indicator of, it just shows the power of alcoholism Mm -hmm. and addiction. Any normal person would hear your story and be like, what is wrong with you, man? But me, I'm like, no, I get it. I totally get it. I hear you. Yeah. And, um, that's how powerful it is. It's, I, it's the toolbox thing for my whole life. The only tool in my toolbox was the pills. So if I was happy or sad or mad, I would reach in there and grab one. If I didn't know how to cope with life, I would reach into the toolbox and grab one. And when I got tossed in jail, they took those out of my toolbox. And so I would like fumble through and try to find something to make me feel better. And there was nothing. And it wasn't until I went to rehab and the counselors, they were like, here, this is meditation. Put this in your toolbox. This is a sponsor. Put this in your your toolbox. And so now my toolbox is overflowing with all of these coping mechanisms. And I'm sure that there are pills in my toolbox somewhere, but they're like buried at the yes. bottom. And I've got 19 things to grab before I get to them. And usually by thing one or two, I'm the moment has passed and I'm okay. So we hear in the rooms a lot that your first year of sobriety, no major life decisions, no, no relationships, no big life events. Let's talk about your first year of sobriety. I feel like I knew where you were going with this. Of course you did. (laughs) Listen, I was almost at a year. Thank you. I, I had 10 months sober. So I had been in jail for four months and then in rehab for six months and i had just gotten into the halfway house you're an exception to the rule clearly i I got really lucky yeah literally and figured so i (laughs) i met a guy while i was in the halfway house and he was graduating from rehab his four month rehab program i looked up at the stage and i'm like he's the one like (laughs) you shouldn't do that but I, I just thought he was so cute. And I love the way he talked about recovery. Anyway, we ended up talking. He moved into a halfway house, like a street over from my halfway house. And um, I got an overnight pass to his halfway house one night. <laughs> and we high five. And then two weeks later, I found out that there was a baby in me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Growing. <laughs> and it's so funny because I had to borrow a dollar from my roommate to walk to the dollar store to get the test. Mm. Like that's how broke I was. And, um, and it said positive and I panicked and I thought for sure he was going to run full speed also. 
Um, but he didn't. He's like, let's get married. <laughs> and so uh, five months after knowing each other, we were tying the knot. I love it. It's such an indicator, I think, to your point, you you would expect someone to be like, I'm out of here, but yeah. clearly an indicator of, of the kind of guy that he is. Yeah. And the, re- the rest is history. It is. <laughs> I would have totally understood if we ran. I, yeah. um, even myself in the beginning, I was like, what am I going to do? I don't even have a job. I don't have a car. I share a room with another addict. Like, how am I going to raise a baby? I don't even know how to live, like, sober. Yeah. Um, but it just, I can't explain it. It just felt like this is what I was supposed to do. So me and uh, his name is Drew. We got married. We worked really hard and saved money. And I stayed living in the halfway house, even though I was pregnant, because I, I had a lot to learn. And we eventually got an apartment, and my son was born on my birthday. Oh, I didn't yeah. know that. I thought it was cool, like cosmically, like my yeah. mom and I were pregnant at the same time, calendar wise. Yeah. I don't know. I I have to think of little stuff like that to connect yeah. me to my mom because I, I feel like she got taken way too early. So anyway, yeah, uh, we were thrown into parenthood. We were going to meetings with the baby strapped to us. And when he was six months old, I found out I was pregnant again. He had a baby already from a previous relationship. And two weeks after my second child was born, his daughter came to live with us full time. And so I went from being like a single sexy bachelorette in a halfway house to a married mom of three in less than two years. And it was so overwhelming and um, not fun, to be honest with you. Yeah, it was too much. I was like, there's no way that this is normal. I can't I don't even know who I am anymore. And so I felt myself really struggling and then feeling depressed. And then it got to the point where I was like. I don't, I resented my kids Mm. for existing and it wasn't even their fault, but like something was wrong with me, but I had enough recovery in me to know that, um, I couldn't fix it myself. And so I went to the doctor and they diagnosed me with postpartum depression and I got help. And then motherhood started feeling the way it was supposed to feel. And I started feeling better. And, um, that's when juggling the Jenkins started. I started writing about my crazy experiences and, you know, I would write about really personal stuff that at the time, nobody was talking about. Yeah. And the amount of people who would send me emails was overwhelming. And I was like, wow, they're like accepting me for all this stuff that I used to hide. And yeah. especially when it came to addiction, I was met with so much love that it inspired me to keep going. So you started as a blog, right? Yes. Yeah. Which part of me regrets a little bit. Why? Well, because now everybody they'll see me you know and they're like oh you're juggling the jigs and I'm like no they're like jiggling your jugs I'm like it's <laughs> yes juggling the Jenkins because you had to have a trendy name like that yeah, when you have right. a blog right but anyway yeah so I did start writing and then um I was writing about addiction and I started writing about my time in jail and somebody said to me you know this is so powerful I've never seen it so graphically written about it. I wish I could send this to my son in jail, you know, I feel like he could really benefit from it. And that's when the light bulb went off. And I was like, I'm going to take my blog down and turn this into a book. And so uh, that's what I did. I took it off the blog. I finished it up. I Googled how to write a book, how to format a book, how to self-publish a book. And I did it. And um, to my surprise, it sold a whole bunch. And then yes. was picked up by Random House Publishing. And 
now it's in stores, which is so crazy. To, to, to the point that, that you made about sharing like our most vulnerable times. And I find it too, like on Instagram or like the episodes of the podcast that I sort of dig down deep and talk about like my experiences are like the ones that seem to be the most popular with listeners. Yeah. And that's what I think people crave in a world that's so filtered and polished and manufactured. They just want something real. And that's the most rewarding thing to me is when I find something online that is like, oh my gosh, I've been doing that all my life. And I thought I was the only one, but there's this other person like just an example, there's a thing called hyperfixation. And I didn't know it was a thing until a couple of weeks ago. And it's where you like get super obsessed with the idea of something like a hobby. And then you yeah. go and you spend all this money to make this hobby happen. And you eat, sleep and breathe this hobby. And then you do it for five seconds and you never effing touch it again. And you're just on to the next thing. And I've done that all my life. And it made me feel like a failure because I'm like, oh, why can't I ever follow through? Um, why am I like this? How do I lose interest so easily? And then this guy made a TikTok about hyperfixation and I was like, it's a thing. And I felt okay with myself Yeah, because I wasn't a failure. It's like a a literal imbalance in your brain. Yeah. Or you were telling your story about your Oscar award-winning performance when the (laughs) cops came. You know that TikTok where it's like, don't, be suspicious. Don't be suspicious. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Made me think of that, but I didn't want to like interrupt your story and like, oh my with- gosh, because I was just sitting across from a cop. I had in my mind right. answering questions. You're like, oh, I got are- this. Yeah. I I'm this. the smartest person in the world. Yeah. Like, it makes you feel like you can manipulate anybody to believe anything about you. And, uh, and yeah, don't be suspicious. <laughs> no, I have a love hate relationship with TikTok. I keep quitting because. It's tough. I, I am like, I've dipped my toe in and it's like, I'm stagnant right now. Yeah. It's so weird. It's addicting, first yeah. of all. Oh, for and sure. I find I'm not accomplishing anything in my life because I'm too busy looking at other people and their creations. Mm-hmm. And also a weird thing that I still struggle with is self-doubt and comparing myself to other people. And when I see so many, everybody on that app is a creator. Right. And so on Facebook, which is where I spend most of my time and do most of my videos, there's not that many creators. And so it's people from their personal profiles watching you. But on TikTok, everybody's a creator. Everybody has a million fans. And Mm -hmm. yeah. And so I'm like, man, I'm not as funny as I thought I was. I have to get out of the mindset that just because somebody else is successful doesn't mean I'm not. But I can't wrap my head around that yet. And that's something that I'm struggling with in my therapy. And I'm like, well, that lady has 3 million followers. So she must be funnier than me. And it's just not the case. Yeah. But I can't like get that out of my head. So I have to work on it and keep talking about it and being honest about it because it sucks the life out of me. And and that's not even why I started. That's what's the worst is when I started this, I had no intention of making money or, or a career out of it. I just wanted to like get out of my house yeah, and talk to adults. Yeah. And so now there's all this weird pressure and stuff. I wasn't prepared for. Now suddenly I'm a business owner. Yeah. Gag. I don't even know anything about business. Gag. I have no clue what I'm doing. What was your first viral video? It was a video I made about mom groups. Mm. 
Um, I was playing different characters that you see in these Facebook mom groups yeah. that you join when you become a mom. Everybody thinks that they know everything about motherhood. And yeah, yeah it's just, it's obnoxious, but it got shared in the mom groups, <laughs> which is like to thousands of people at a time. And I think that's where a bunch of my following initially really came from. And so it's a weird mix. There's people who follow me for funny videos. And then there's people who follow me for addiction. And it's very neat to hear the people say, I've never struggled with addiction, but I've learned so much from you Yeah, because nobody comes over planning on getting schooled about what it's like to be in the trap house, but right. that's what we're doing over here. So if you want the funny videos, you got to listen to the <laughs> right. rest of it too. Yeah. I was introduced to you through, um, because of high achiever, um, in the rooms, my friend, um, recommended that I read your book and really? that, and I did that first and then found my way to, um, to Facebook and all, all the fun stuff. Um, well, but I, friend, I said, thank you. That's so nice. I that. will. Yeah. And I, like I started off drinking and I, I didn't like, I, if I had one sip of alcohol, I would literally end up like naked yeah. In a bar trying to fight mm-hmm. somebody or make out with them or in a ditch crying and calling all my exes. <laughs> I was the friend who one would, or the other. <laughs> yeah. People the next day would be like, I'm never drinking with you again. You're obnoxious. Uh, and there's like all this guilt and shame. Like, what the hell did I do? But it didn't occur to me that I had a problem. Like I just thought that was normal. And then it wasn't until the drugs kicked in uh, that I knew it got really bad. And and I admire people whose primary thing was alcohol because you there's you'll be at a red light and a truck a buck you know a beer truck will drive by yeah or you walk into a store and it's everywhere or you're I was sitting in the movie theater this isn't going to be funny to anybody else probably and it's probably too far but I was in the movie theater and there's like these screensavers before the previews come on and it's like drinks being poured in slow motion yes. and all this stuff. And I turn to my husband, I'm like, can you imagine if like somebody was like loading up a spoon in slow motion and lighting it, drawing like, back the syringe. Yeah. We don't have to yeah. deal with that. Yeah. Like people who struggle with alcohol. It's so tough, but sticking around the right people is so important. I, I say often that, you know, I work a 12 step program, but I realize that that's, not the path for everyone you know everyone mm-hmm. finds finds their own um hopefully can find their own path to recovery but i think in in every arena or aspect i think the community aspect is the most important thing mm-hmm. to surround yourself with like-minded people people who understand like you know we uh, i get you and you get me and and we don't even really have to say anything exactly um, Nope. And I love that you say that too, because I feel like there's such a tremendous responsibility for people who have a platform, um, especially in this, what we do, because I'm so afraid that I'm going to say something that either scares someone away from recovery. And so I always keep it so general and I don't talk about specific programs and I don't knock anybody who's taking any alternate routes. Like as long as you're heading in the right direction, I'll never tell you you're doing it wrong. Right. Have you thought about how you'll talk to your kids about addiction? Yes, I have. I plan on just being so open about it. Yeah. I mean, I have to be. First of all, it's all over the internet. But right. Second of all, <laughs> I think um, there's no shame in it anymore for me. 
And I think what a good lesson that is to them. Like, look, this is what I went through and I overcame that. You can overcome anything. All you have to do is talk about it and admit when you need help and reach out for the help and just, you know, become self-aware. And that's what I hope to teach them is if you feel messed up in your head, let me know. If you don't want to let me know, let somebody else know, but let somebody know because life doesn't have to be miserable. Hmm. So true. I knew nothing about recovery or that I had no idea that this world existed of like evolution, being wanting to be a better person, you know, learning about yourself and, and what like the core root of, you know, our problems. And, and it just has been the last six years has just been, you know, and, and to your point, like when you went in, into rehab, just sucking everything up and wanting just, I want all the knowledge. I want it yeah. all, you know, and, and to then hopefully be able to turn and, and, you know, impart that on other people and, and try to try to help maybe just one person. I say at the end of the episodes, if we help just one person, I think our job is done. So it's about making a difference to just one person. Yep. yep. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you having me. Yeah. I appreciate you and all you do bringing awareness to uh, addiction. And I think more importantly, recovery. Amazing. I think you're awesome. I look forward to when it comes out. I'll share it out. Thank you so much for including me. Let's keep in touch, my friend. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay, bye. Okay, bye. Have a good day. I appreciate ya. you. Too. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Do I leave now? Or is it, do we just end the podcast? <laughs> do I leave? Is this the end? Thank you so much, Tiffany. I wanted to end with the starfish poem. Uh, for those of you who follow me on Instagram, you may have seen the teaser that I that I posted um, on my reels about the starfish poem and uh, me not being able to understand what Tiffany was saying because of her thick Floridian accent. But I wanted to read it here on the podcast and reference the fact that I say at the end of each episode, if we help just one person, our job is done. So making a difference the starfish poem one day a man was walking along the beach when he noticed a boy picking something up and gently throwing it into the ocean approaching the boy he asked what are you doing the youth replied throwing starfish back into the ocean the surf is up and the tide is going out if i don't throw them back they'll die son the man said don't you realize there are miles and miles of beach and thousands of starfish You can't make a difference. After listening politely, the boy bent down, picked up another starfish, and threw it back into the surf. Then, smiling at the man, he said, I made a difference for that one. And I couldn't think of ending on a more perfect note. Thank you so much for listening today. Huge thank you for Tiffany for your time and being so open and honest with us. Hopefully you heard something that resonates with you today. And if we help just one person, our job is done. Check back soon for new episodes with new stories to tell. But until then, try your best not to drink and be good to yourselves. Bye, friends.